Good morning, church. Uh, Happy Sabbath to you all. I'd like to uh, wish you greeting in the name of the North New South Wales Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. (laughs) My name is Matt Parra, and I uh, work here in the local conference, as Abel said, uh, as the evangelism and personal ministries and Sabbath school departmental director. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all this morning. Um, Vadim Butov did a good job of keeping me away from you guys. Uh, he succeeded for the six years that he was here alongside of me. Um, but Abel, he's very soft-hearted. And uh, unfortunately, you get me this morning because of that fact. Um, <laughs> it's good to be here with you. Um, there's a whole lot of fans going back and forth this morning. I guess you guys are warm. Is there anyone else uh, who is wearing uh, a jacket this morning besides myself in the sanctuary? Is there anyone else wearing a, a suit jacket this morning? Anyone else? Okay, there's, could you raise your hands high if you're wearing a suit jacket this morning? Okay, there's one gentleman in the back. Okay, another gentleman. Is that Boris's dad? Oh, yeah, Eastern European, of course. Um, I just wanted to see who else was crazy in church this morning besides myself. Uh, it's a little bit warm, but uh, praise God for the sun, for the summer, weather. It's awesome. I'm from North America originally. I uh, grew up in the state of Florida in the United States, and it's quite warm there virtually all year long, but uh, it's less warm during Christmas. And so us North Americans, we're used to having Christmas and New Year in, uh, in the cooler times. And so it's really novel and, and interesting for me to enjoy Christmas and New Year uh, with my Australian family uh, in the warmth. Hey, look, I'm, I'm here today. I just want to say, by the way of introduction, I'm here today with my wife and my mother-in-law and my father-in-law and my three sons, um, Max, Benji, and Desmond. And Max is uh, four years old. Um, Max, hey, Max, you're four years old, right? Okay, no, sorry. My son Max is five. Uh, Benji is two. He's about to turn three on New Year's Eve. And Desmond is six months old. And uh, our in- my in-laws are here from Canada visiting uh, us now. They left, what, minus five degree weather, roughly, to come here? Yeah, so they, they left the-, the frozen tundra of Canada to come be here with us this morning. But to- I'm just going to have a short word of prayer and get into... The message for the morning, which is entitled, Do This and You Will Live. Father in heaven, I thank you for the opportunity to speak and to share. I ask that you would condescend to give me your spirit. I pray that you would please rid me of self. Help me to care as you care about the people that are hearing my voice, the people that are hearing this message. I ask God that you'd give us ears to hear, that you'd touch us with the power of your spirit. If we need to be comforted, we pray that you would comfort us. If we need to be convicted, I pray that you would convict us. Bless my words and may they be your words. And um, irrespective of the communication this morning, may you speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, My friends, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, 
to the Gospel of Luke. We begin the message this morning in the book of Luke, third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin reading this morning in verse 25. And once again, the sermon title this morning is, Do This and You Will Live. Do this and you will live. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. The Bible says in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And the lawyer stood up and put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Bible says that this lawyer, this expert in the law of Moses, stood up not to gain insight or understanding from Jesus. No, he stood up to put him to the test. He wasn't looking for understanding from Jesus. He wasn't looking for help. His question was not going to be sincere. The Bible says that this lawyer, this expert in the law of Moses, he stood up with the intention of putting Jesus to the test. You've heard it said before by a teacher, perhaps, a professor, perhaps. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, I beg to differ. When your teachers or your professors or your instructors at some point in the distant past said to you, there's no such thing as a stupid or a dumb question, what they meant to say was, there's no such thing as a dumb question if the questioner is being sincere in asking the question. There is such a thing as a dumb question. It's a question like the one that's about to be asked. One that's not sincere in its intent, but rather that's aimed at something different. This individual was out to, in a sense, expose Jesus. He didn't want, once again, understanding or knowledge or guidance or assistance or help from Jesus Christ. He wanted to put him to the test. And this is what he says to Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do? To obtain eternal life. I was preaching an evangelistic series in... Where was it? Illinois. In the state of Illinois. And there was an individual coming to the evangelistic meetings. His name was Jack Butler. And he was coming along with his wife, Margaret. These were awesome people, beautiful people, lovely people. They were so open-hearted and genuine in their pursuit of truth. They were so lovely and humble and genuine. I just loved Jack and Margaret. And they were so excited about Scripture and what they were learning that they decided to bring family members and friends from their community to come to this series of evangelistic presentations. And this one particular evening, a friend of theirs was at the meetings, and I could tell from... From, from the way that he was carrying himself, that he was not as excited and as open 
as Margaret and Jack were about the biblical presentations that I was giving. Now, you can never judge. You can never judge by appearance, you know, what's in someone's heart. But, but after a while doing the same thing over and over and over and being in the same circumstances as an evangelist traveling around in the United States, you begin to pick up some things intuitively. And I could tell that this friend of Jack and Margaret's was not as excited as they were. And he came up to me after one of the presentations that I had given, and he said to me exactly what this lawyer is saying to Jesus. It was amazing. He said to me, hey, you know, I'm just wondering, how is it that I obtain eternal life? And I just knew at the time that I shouldn't answer with my own words, but rather I should give a a verse of scripture. I should answer his question with a verse from the Bible because I knew that he was someone who believed in the Bible. And so I said to him, I quoted Jesus. I said to him, you know, well, Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. So I said, look, you believe in Jesus. You love the Bible. And Jesus says, you know, you want, you want to follow him, you know, deny yourself and pick up your cross. And then he said, no, that's not, I, I get that, and that's, that's okay, but, but what I want to know is, is, what do I do? What's my part in the salvation equation? You're like, what, what do I do? And I remember, I said to him, I said, you know, you don't, you don't really need to do a whole lot of anything. You just need to accept what God has done on your behalf. And it was funny, guys. As soon as I said that to him, Jack was standing right there, my friend, and he goes, aha, Aha, you see? Aha, you see? He wasn't talking to me. He was talking to the man who was questioning me, asking me how he found eternal life. And I was a little bit confused and wondering what this was all about. And then finally Jack said, you see, he's not a legalist. (laughs) The man was asking me a question, but he wasn't really looking for answers. He had already decided in his mind who I was and what I was, and he was asking me a question to put me to the test, to expose me, to show his friend that I was a fraud, that he shouldn't listen to me. He was trying to, in essence, discredit me in the eyes of Jack and Margaret Butler. This lawyer, this is to say he is what you would call an expert in the law that God gave to Moses, which was to govern the Israelite nation. Okay? He's not looking for answers. He's not wanting Jesus to guide him. He, 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 he's settled in his own knowledge. He, he knows what he knows, and he's going to expose Jesus and discredit him in the eyes of the people around. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is Jesus' answer. You're an expert. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And your neighbor as yourself... That's Leviticus chapter 19. And he said to him, this is Jesus responding now, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Now the fact that the lawyer, this, this, this doctor of the law, the fact that he answered correctly shows that he was not sincere in his first question. 
you have answered correctly. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You've got the right answer. You know the truth. You understand on an intellectual level. You have, you have spoken correctly. This is Jesus' response. And then Jesus goes on to say, you've got the right answer. Do this. Do it. And you will live. In other words, Jesus is implying that you understand on an intellectual level, but practically speaking, on a real life level, you're not knowing or doing. You, scribe, you, expert, you, doctor of the law, you have the right answers, but you're not applying the right answers. The, the, the answers that you have in your head are not translating into your life. And Jesus is evaluating this expert of the law, this one who knows the Bible so well. And he's saying, you've got the right answer, but you're not doing the right answer. You're not living the right answer. You're not expressing the right answer in your life. Do this and you will live. Obviously, the guy is not doing it. Or else Jesus wouldn't have said, do this and you will live. Now, it was 17 years ago that I first came to faith in Jesus. I repented of my sins in Jesus' name and began to follow God and to make his word supreme in my life. And uh, immediately after my conversion to Christianity and the Seventh-day Adventist movement, I, I just started to serve as a volunteer, as a missionary, and... Not so much for on a, on a formal level, but just as a volunteer. Just I wanted to share my faith. I wanted to get out there in the world. and So I went to a small mission school in South Dakota. And uh, there just learned more about God and how to share him with others. And um, I used to visit my mom at her church in, during Christmas every year. And uh, Sorry, I used to visit my family at Christmas every year. And I would attend church on the Sabbath with my mom at her local Seventh-day Adventist church. And in one particular Christmas, uh, Pastor John Appel, her local church pastor, preached a really awesome sermon about mission and reaching the lost and, and, and doing what God has called us to do as a people. And it was a really great sermon and it was a really high Sabbath. And you guys know the Sabbaths where it's just the Spirit is there. There's just such a sense of God's presence and the message was connecting and the people were amening and it was just, you know, we do that actually in America. And... It was just an exciting, awesome, high Sabbath. And um, I remember walking out of the church, and as I walked out of the church, there was a homeless guy, and he was there asking for money and asking for help. And this is common in the United States. After church on Sabbath, you'll get homeless people there asking for money or help or whatever. And this particular individual was outside of my mom's church, and I just walked by him. Because I didn't want to do what I'm always doing. I wanted to give someone else a shot, a chance. My life was involved full-time in reaching out in the community and preaching the gospel and, and just helping people. And so I thought, let me just kind of take a step back and just watch and see what happens. Now, guys, during the sermon about mission and evangelism and reaching the lost and helping those who are in need, everyone in the church was, amen, amen. Hallelujah. Yes, sir. This is it. Yes. 
And so I'm watching. I'm watching. And I'm wondering, who's going to be the one who goes up and approaches this gentleman and helps this gentleman and ministers to this gentleman or who prays with this gentleman or who invites this gentleman home or who does something? And I tell you, and I don't say this to be insulting and, and to be degrading or, or to be mean to anyone. I'm just saying this because this is a matter of fact. And this is an experience that I experienced. And as the church members walked out of the church, not one person passed them by or two pa- people or three people. Everyone passed this individual by. And not one person stopped to help or lent a hand or donated some money or said a prayer or invited this person to be blessed by them. And this is a a perfect example, a perfect example of how a group of individuals could, could, could have the right answers and be saying amen to the right answers and be moved and motivated and inspired by the truth of Scripture that's being preached, but yet who were unwilling to, at that particular point in time, to do it, to do it. To express it, to live it, to make it practical, to make it real. It's easy to sit in a church and say amen when someone talks about mission and service and sacrifice and evangelism. It's easy. Of course it's easy, right? Sure, it's easy. But it's a little bit more difficult and challenging to actually engage with the homeless guy that's standing right outside of the door. And so after everyone had left, I just walked up to this individual. And I just invited him over to our house. I said, hey, listen, man, I'm a poor missionary. I don't have any money, but we're going to go over to my mom's and we're going to have lunch. Do you want to come over? And he said, sure, I'll come over. So he gets in my car. I drive him over. When we're in my car, I'm talking to him about faith in Christ and my experience with God and how I had a, a past and God had saved me from my life. And, you know, I'm just witnessing to him and talking to him. And we get to my mom's house. We had lunch with him. And he smelled really bad because he hadn't showered for a while and he'd been living on the streets. And I said, hey, man, you want to take a shower? I got some extra clothes you can have. And we put some clothes on the guy. We gave him a shower. I said to him, look, I I grew up around this area. I know some friends that own businesses. And we could probably get you a job. I could find you a place to sleep, you know, maybe in someone's garage or something. I don't know. But, I mean, we can help you. You want some help. And he wasn't really interested in that. But. We stood around in my living room after we had eaten together and had worshiped together and we gave him a shower and gave him new clothes. And I remember we were standing in a circle and we put our arms around each other and we said a prayer. And as we were praying, we prayed for him. And I remember when we were praying for him, he began to weep and he began to cry. And he began to convulse and, and, and weep so loudly that, that you, you, we just we could not hear him. He's just crying and crying and crying. And I remember, guys, he, I remember him, him, him just at the end of the prayer just saying, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for interrupting the prayer and I'm so sorry for crying and I'm so sorry for being emotional. But you have no idea how many years it's been. I haven't been treated like a human being in years. And he said, I'm sorry that I can't stay I'm sorry that I have to go, but I thank you so much for your help, and I would do anything for you, and I love you, and thank you so much. And I remember we just kind of gathered around the guy, and we just gave him a big hug, and he just cried, and he cried, and he cried. Now, here's my basic point. There's a lot of basic points in the illustration, but one of the basic points is that when he was crying, and we were standing in my living room, and we were holding our arms around him, I want to tell you, I felt alive. I felt alive. 
I felt as if my, my life mattered. I was energized. I was excited. It was so blessed and so wonderful because here's a man who looked like a bum, but he was a son of God and we were treating him as such. And yes, we took a risk and yes, we took a chance, but we decided, yeah, sure. We don't just want to sit in church and say, amen. We want to actually do it and live. And we were alive. Amen. We were alive. When Jesus says to this lawyer, do this and you will live, make God's word practical and real and express it genuinely in your life. He's not just saying God will reward you because he's, he's going to be obligated to uh, with heaven. He's saying if you do this, if you implement what God teaches in his word, you will be alive in the truest sense. He's not saying, if you do this, you now are fit for heaven, or in some, uh, I guess in other words, you could say, God is obligated to give you heaven, or you've earned now your right to be in heaven. He's just simply saying, if you do what the word of God says, you will actually, in the truest sense, be alive. Does this make sense? You'll really be alive. You will be fulfilling the purpose of your design. The Bible says the man wants to justify himself. He feels a bit awkward and uncomfortable as Jesus responds to his question. And, he, and he, so he says, well, but who, who, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story that many of us are very familiar with, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so here we go. We begin at the, at the top of the story. Uh, the Bible says, who's my neighbor, he, he asks. And Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance... A priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. These individuals were probably not, in the classical sense, bad people. It's easy for me to look into scripture and see those who oppose Jesus as bad, like as essentially inherently bad. But but we need to realize that that these were not individuals who woke up in the morning, this priest and this scribe, and who said to themselves, you know what? I want to oppose the gospel. I want to I want to be a hypocrite. I, I want to make a pretense of religion for the sake of power and control over others. They were not cognizant or aware of the circumstances that they were in, I would say. And in many respects, I would venture to guess that these were relatively, you know, decent individuals. The priest doesn't wake up in the morning and go, oh yes, I'm going to make a, a, a joke out of religion and, and, and make the religion of, of God detestable in the sight of the rest of the world by being a, a pretentious hypocrite. This isn't, you know, the tenor of this person's thoughts or, or actions. Do you know what I'm saying? 
I'm just telling you this because I think it's important that when we look into Scripture and we analyze the people, the individuals there, we, we must not just like demonize the individual and suppose that that individual is just essentially or inherently bad. If we do that, then we won't realize or understand how relevant the stories are to us personally because Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit doesn't put stories of people in the Bible who, who fail and who make mistakes to teach us about their failings and their mistakes. He puts it into Scripture to help us and to guide us and to teach us. And the Bible says that these two individuals, these religious leaders, these men of position and privilege in the church, these ones who sit in the seat of Moses and teach on God's behalf, they see an individual. He has been beaten. He has been robbed. He's been stolen from. He's on the ground. He's hurting. He's alone. They see him. They observe him. And the Bible says that they walk by on the other side. Now, they're probably not thinking to themselves, oh, I really hope this person dies. I'm just going to walk by on the other side. They're probably not thinking to themselves, oh, wow, this is great. I can be a religious person who who teaches everyone else what God says and who tells everyone else what they should do for God, but I'm not going to do it myself. Yay. That's not what they were thinking. I'm sure that that's not what they were thinking. They were probably just busy. They probably just had some important stuff to do. They were probably just considering how dangerous it was to delay on a road where an individual had been mugged and robbed. Right? To help this individual would have meant that they had to allow their plans to be disrupted. They probably had places to go. They probably had things to do. And those things that they had to do were probably important things, right? The the guy was a scribe. The other was a Pharisee. They had important things to do. They had important meetings to make. They had stuff. Their schedule would have been disrupted if they would have stopped and helped the man that was hurt on the road. They would have had to risk themselves And put themselves in a position where they themselves could be in danger. Helping people can be dangerous. And helping people can be disruptive. Yeah? They passed by on the other side. Mm. I want to read you uh, a, a statement here from... Ellen White, and before I do, I just want to tell you a quick story of um, something that happened to us a few months ago when we were traveling on a Friday afternoon we, 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 in Port Macquarie. So my family and I, we travel a lot on the weekends uh, for various purposes, and uh, we decided to spend the Sabbath in Port Macquarie with some friends on our way home from a work trip. And on the foreshore there in Port, there is a really beautiful... Uh, walking path and beside that walking path on the beach there is a skate park and it's a really nice skate park and my sons Benji and Max they really love it when we find a skate park they love to skate in the skate park well not skate but ride their scooters 
and their bicycles. And so we went into the skate park, Benji and Max and I. And uh, I'm just doing this so I don't pass out. Sorry. Is it okay that I just took my jacket off? Okay. Just wasn't sure of the rules here. And so we're just hanging out. It's me and the boys, and they're doing their thing. And the idea comes to my mind that we should go get mommy because before we leave, the boys would probably really enjoy mommy seeing them ride in the skate park. And, um, and, and, and I come up to Max and I said, hey, buddy, we're going to go get mommy so that she can come and watch you boys in the skate park. Stay here. I'm going to go get Benji. And so I went to go get Benji. And I remember I, I got Benji and started to look around for my son, Max, but I didn't see him. He just disappeared. And this is worrying because it's there's a lot of people walking back and forth. I would say, I mean, a hundred people every five minutes are just walking. I mean, it's not more than that. I mean, just hunt dozens and dozens of people just walking back and forth. There was a lot of people there. And I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of dad who's kind of a freak out dad. Like I'm an ultra paranoid parent, an overprotective parent. And I never thought that I would be one, but I'm always worried about the worst. And I'm worried about the worst because I've experienced things in life and I've met people in the world who are, who are pretty bad. And I want to make sure that my sons are always protected from those people and they never have to carry the burden of a life scarred by being hurt or, or, or abused or whatever, you know. And so I just have a very strong protective inst- instinct for my sons. And I, I got Benji. I'm looking for Max. He's not there. I start walking around. And I'm, I'm calling his name. I'm saying, hey, Max, where you at, buddy? Max, hey, hey. And I'm, I'm running. I'm looking. And in just a short time, as some of you parents have experienced before, you know, the feeling of mild fear, it turns real quick into absolute horror and terror and worry. And so my screams went from, hey, Max, to Max, Max. Max! And I was just screaming and screaming and running around like a crazy man looking for my son, Max. And there's a few people who saw me and, and, and kind of understood what was happening and they, they asked me what he was wearing and what he looked like. And Oh, he's about, he's about this tall and he's wearing a red shirt and he's got blonde hair and blue eyes and he's got a scooter. And, oh, nice. Yeah. How cool is this? Are some people going to come out with some grapes too? Ah, thank you. And, and I was freaking out. And, and God blessed these people for coming to help me. And it was a young lady and her boyfriend. And they were running around. And, hey, we'll go look over there. And you go over here. We're running and looking. And we couldn't find him anywhere, guys. And I was so afraid. And I was so worried. And I was so desperately desirous of finding my son. Hey, that's air that you hear. Yeah. Cool. But I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. And so 
this idea pops in my mind that he probably just got on his scooter and, and, and motored on down to where our car was parked, where Sharice, my wife, was sitting with our newborn Desmond. And so I picked up Benji in one arm and I picked up his scooter in the other arm and I was just running like a madman down the trail and I'm just praying, oh God in heaven, oh God in heaven, if, if someone's abducted my son, oh God in heaven, please help me to find my son, please give me the courage to do whatever it takes to rescue my son back. And I'm just, all I can think about guys is saving my son, saving my little boy. What would I do? How would I live? What, what would life be like for a parent who lost their child. And then it dawns on me, you know, he, he's probably not lost. He's probably just there with mom by the car. And then and simultaneous to my fearful thoughts about how I'm going to save him, I started thinking thoughts about how bad I was going to spank him if I found him safe and sound. <laughs> yeah, I'll go. It, was, it, was just, it was just such a terrible situation. And as I'm running with Benji in one arm and the scooter in the other arm, I see Max and his mom just coming down the trail. And I said, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God. But I had this sense of just fear and worry. And um, in our family, we have this saying, okay? We have this little thing that I say to my sons because I want to train them to protect each other. I look at Max and I say, Max, what's my job? What's my job? And he says to me, to protect me. I said, son, what's your job? He says, to protect Benji. That's his little brother. And then I say, okay, and what's your job, my job, and Benji's job? And then he says, to protect mommy. I said, that's right. And when I saw him on that trail running in, in his little scooter with mommy, I threw down the scooter that was in my hand, and I looked at him and I said, son, what's my job? What's my job? And he began to cry and say to protect me. Okay, I'll tell you that story for a particular reason. Be patient with me. I've got to read a little bit of stuff here, but it's so powerful. Listen to this statement. This is a, this is a couple statements. This is a story here by Ellen White. It says, on a scrap of paper, I read a story of a girl who was lost in the woods, imprisoned by snow. Days and nights passed, and she lost the power to make any effort and laid motionless. At last, some woodmen passed the place. The snow had melted, and they found her unconscious. They gently raised her, laid her on some boards, and carried her to the warmth of their own hearth. They cared for her tenderly, and they had the joy of seeing her restored to consciousness. Then they learned who she was and let her parents know in regards to her. The parents came for her, and when she was strong, they took her home. It is a wonderful story of a hardy girl, but this is not why I I tell it to you. I tell it because I want you to understand the anger of love. Suppose, if you can, that these men had seen the helpless girl and had passed by on the other side, leaving her to die. Now, this is the thing. I'm looking for my son, Max, and there were individuals who took an interest in my fear and in my worry for my son, and they jumped in to help me. How much did I appreciate them? How, how much did I, I, I in my heart, just want to 
say, I'll do anything for you. Thank you for caring enough about me and my son to help me look for my sons. I would have been pretty perturbed if everyone was utterly ambivalent. So suppose the parents had heard what had been done to the child they loved. How would they have felt towards these men? Thankful, do you think? Would they have been simply indifferent? Would they not, sorry, would they not rather have been terribly grieved, wildly indignant? Would not the knowledge of their child might have lived, make more bitter the sorrow at her death? Had they chanced to meet these men, would their words to them have been soft, honed words? Would they not have denounced them with the righteous indignation that was as hot as their tears, intense as their love? Here, I thought, was a human life saved by human sympathy and tenderness. But how must the anger of God burn towards those who see souls in peril, ready to die, and yet say nothing, do nothing to help them? They give all attention to the ninety and nine that are within the fold, while souls in peril are around them. And no hand is stretched out to save them. If one goes astray, they pass on indifferent. And that soul has all the responsibilities of an immortal life. To lose heaven is to lose everything. And yet how indifferent, how careless, never to give warning or show him the way of life. These two priests, they passed by on the other side. But they were priests. They had the light of God. They had the knowledge of God. They sat in the seat of Moses, dispensing eternal truths in Jesus or in God's name. And here they have an opportunity to minister, to reach out to, to save. And they pass by on the other side because they're busy, because they have things to do. They have a schedule. They have plans. And to minister to the lost, to the hurting, meant to disrupt their plans. It meant to be to, to put themselves in a dangerous position. But here's an interesting point. People, Christians and non-Christians, they, they, they disrupt their plans all the time for personal pleasure and enjoyment. We disrupt our plans all the time. We put ourselves in danger all the time for personal pleasure and enjoyment's sake. Why not risk himself for this particular man who's hurting? These guys pass by on the other side. And this this man is a child of God. So then Jesus mentions the the Samaritan, the half-breed, the despised individual... And, and basically just describes how when the Samaritan, for those of you guys who don't know the story, maybe one or two, Jesus talks about a Samaritan who the Jews hated, who came by, he saw the individual who had been robbed and physically assaulted, and the Bible says this Samaritan looks upon him and he has compassion for him. He has compassion for him. And his compassion compels him to stop and to help. It may be risky. His plans may be disrupted, but he's going to help. And so he stops. And the Bible says the Samaritan stops. And, And there he pours onto the man's wounds oil and wine. 
He binds up his wounds. He places him on his own animal and he takes him to an inn. He gives money to an innkeeper and says, whatever it costs you to take care of him, here's some money. And if it costs you anything more, I'll be back in the future and I'll repay you. Now just think about this. This individual has compassion and he's willing to use his own money, his personal resources in order to benefit this individual. He touches him. He has to touch him. He has to wrap up his wounds. He puts this man on his own animal. Is the man bleeding? Has the man been sweating? Is he in a nice condition? No. He's icky. He's yucky. He's bleeding. He's not in a good condition. And this individual, this Samaritan, he comes very close to him. This teaches us that in order to reach the lost, in order to to do what God says and live in the truest sense, we have to come close to people who aren't in the best condition. I used to pick up homeless guys in the United States when I used to drive around. I'm going to start talking really fast now because I'm I'm out of time, but I just need to finish a few thoughts here. I used to drive around the U.S. when I was first converted, and I would always pick up homeless guys as they hitchhiked in the U.S. And I did it because, well, I traveled a lot, and I just felt compelled to do it. And one of the reasons, too, to tell you the truth, was that it's an easy opportunity to witness. You know, you pick up someone, they drive in the car with you for six hours, and you just tell them about Jesus and the Bible and the truth of God and all these kinds of things, you know. And I remember... One of the things that I'll never forget is that these guys really smelled bad. Most of them smelled really, really bad because they'd sleep in gutters and in ditches and they wouldn't take showers and they would drink and sometimes they would go to the bathroom on themselves and they weren't always in the best condition. And and they would usually make my truck stink. And I have a very sensitive nose and I hate bad smells. I don't know what it is, but I've just, I've just got a knack for smelling stuff that smells bad, and I hate stuff that smells bad. And the price for me to help these individuals was I had to drive for hours in a car that stunk, and oh boy, I hated that. It's just a little illustration of a, a metaphor, if you will, of, of, of the price that has to be paid at times for the sake of those who need us. This guy is a type of Jesus. This Samaritan, he's a half-breed, half-Jew, half-Assyrian. Jesus, fully God and fully man, both despised and rejected, but both filled with compassion and love and care and concern. And when they see someone who's hurting, they can't live with themselves if they just don't help, if they just don't express the love of God. See the story of the Good Samaritan as a metaphor. Who's more broken? Who's more bruised? Who's more exploited? Who's more bent than those who are lost and perishing in ignorance without the gospel? Is this true or is this not true? It's totally true. God is calling us today through me, through a weak and skinny and imperfect vessel to do this and live. Don't just know the right answers. Make practical use of the word of God. Implement it into your life and actually reach out for the sake of those who are lost like Jesus, the one who you said you followed did. At the end of the story, Jesus says to the Jewish scribe, he says, okay, which, which of these do you consider a neighbor? 
And the Jewish scribe says, well, I suppose the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, you're, you're correct. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Some of us need to stop being like the lawyer. So on ABC, this is the last thing I'll say, guys, and then you'll be relieved of my presence, but not of the Holy Spirit's presence. I saw an ABC special this week. It was really awesome. It was about a surfer from South Africa who jumped on a charter, a surf charter in Indonesia. He wanted to go catch some waves. And... uh, His first night out to sea, as the boat was traveling to the islands where the surfing spots are, he was sick. He was violently ill. And so he was was hanging off the side of the boat around midnight, the first night out to sea, and he was vomiting off the side of the ship. He didn't have a good hold on the boat, and a wave kind of smashed into the side of the ship, and he he fell off. He just fell off the boat. And no one knew that he had fallen off. And so the surf charter boat just continued to drive away. Can you guys imagine? He's just sitting there in the black of night in the midst of an immense ocean. And he's watching the ship engine away. How horrifying. How terrifying. And the ship, it just rides away. This individual man is left in the ocean for at least 30 hours. His boat captain in the morning when he discovered that the man had fallen overboard when they recognized that he wasn't on the boat, decided that he would go searching for him. Now, there were 12 men on that boat besides him, and they had all paid roughly five to $7,000 to spend a week on this boat surfing good waves in Indonesia. So the captain of the ship has to say to those individuals, I'm sorry, I know you've paid lots of money, but we have to find this guy. We have to find him. And so he proceeds to call in to the other ships in the area, and they start a, a, a search. There are very few people who are thinking that they'll find him. There's very few individuals who are confident that they're going to find this man. How do you find one little dot in the middle of the ocean? It's it's virtually impossible. After 12 hours, 16 hours, 20 hours, most of the men on the ship just said, you know, Captain, it's probably likely that he's, he's gone. He's gone. I remember it was so fascinating, the ABC interviewer, he was interviewing the captain of the ship and he said to the captain, why was it that you wouldn't quit? Why was it that you wouldn't give up? Everyone else started to tell you he's dead, he's lost. Why did you continue? And he said to the ABC reporter, as long as there was a possibility of him being alive, I had to continue to search because it's not the Australian way to leave people behind. And he was a salty 
Australian. He's the kind of Australian that you imagine when you live in America before you move here. Yeah, mate, you know, mate, he, if I was out there, mate, in, this, in the ocean all alone, I'd want someone to keep looking for me. It's not the Australian way. We don't leave anyone behind. And as long as I knew, mate, that there was a possibility that he'd be alive, I kept searching. And he kept searching. They searched for over 30 hours, and they finally found him. It was a miracle. It was amazing. It was unreal. ABC interviewed the man who was out there, and they they got his story. He had run-ins with sharks. He started to hallucinate. He spent hours and hours crying and weeping and moaning and groaning and praying and screaming. And he's in the dark. It's at night. He's in the middle of the ocean. He's disoriented. He's confused. Is there any help? Is there any hope? Does anyone care? He's lost and he's undone. And then the sun comes up and he's burning and he's frying in the sun. And he has run-ins with wild animals. You see the terror, the horror. And there's one man, a good decent Aussie bloke and he just keeps searching and searching and searching and he finds him he finds him and they're just gobsmacked they can't believe it we found this guy we found this guy because of the determination of the captain of the ship who wouldn't let everyone give up and it was awesome the ABC interviewer interviews the man who had been lost at sea and his wife and the wife is crying and weeping and hugging the captain they brought them from south africa to australia so that they can meet the man who was responsible for saving her husband's life and the children are there and the wife is there and they're just crying and they're just celebrating this man and you know and i know that when that man was out there looking it would have been painstaking it would have been trying it would have been difficult it would have been challenging right yes 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 But he keeps going and he keeps going and he says to the ABC interviewer, you know what, man, if that was me, if that was me, I wouldn't want anyone to quit looking for me. And so I just couldn't quit on him. Amen. So church in the new year, God is asking you, don't just live the religion of the lawyer, of of that individual expert of the law. Live the religion of Jesus. Do and live. Be what God has called you to be. Seek and save the lost. Do this and you'll live. God bless you guys. Thank you for your time.